as we sit on this rainy August day in, in a room that the art is wonderful, but the people are missing, but we're giving information that the people need because I'm always asked questions as a hip hop artist and doing different things in business to look at music as a business and artistry as a business. So I'm happy that both of you are joining me because you all help artists advocate for themselves where sometimes I believe they have apprehensions about advocating for themselves or just don't know how. Um, and two different approaches, two different things. I think we need to open this discussion as this is a part of the Orthea Barnes Music Festival and I wanna carry on the same way I'm doing the music, this discussion as well. And that's why I'm podcasting it now so that I can share it and just email it to people. Uh, but the first question that I have is a question that we had even when we had the radio interview uh, that you joined me with. At what point should an artist begin charging for their artistry? Oh, Attorney Stephanie Hammonds. Well, I think that art has intrinsic value and I think that the introduction of the internet and um, digital music and the free availability of music has really done a disservice to music because there's no other industry where people create products and then are encouraged to give them away for free. So I don't, I think at the point that you feel like you have a valuable product, a finished product, you should begin charging for it. However, the current climate, um, we have a whole generation of, of music listeners who have grown up with free access to music. So what I suggest is that the approach to how you sell it, packaging it with things, whether it's merchandises, I guess they call it bundling. You know, if you bundle music with other things, tangible things, um, and then charge for it, um, it makes sense. But I discourage um, artists from buying into that concept that they have to give music away. Um, I think there are creative ways, even in this climate, to establish a value for it and to demand some sort of compensation for it. Uh -huh. And I, I would agree wholeheartedly with what Stephanie just said. In fact, um, you know, with the, the advent of technology, because we both started practicing law before the internet, um, which is kind of sad to age us. It is. But, you know, and we've been able to see over the life of our practice how it's evolved from, you know, it used to be that you would sell the physical music and then performances kind of was sort of the, to support the music. Today, you're performing in order, to, or you're, you're recording in order to support a tour. And so it's been a, a complete flip-flop. But, you know, one of the things that you do see with technology is people are giving away way too much music for free, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's um, you know on a lot of internet radio, um, and it's very easy for people to take it. Um, I see it a lot with photographers, where they might put some photographs up on Facebook or on Instagram, and people are stealing their, their works from them. Um, musicians have the same risk, and I think if anything, you know, they need to be cautioned about where they're exactly placing a lot of their music because they are giving it away. And she's right that if you know once you realize that you actually have some value there. If it's already been out in the public domain, you've pretty much lost that value. Um, and the young lady who was here earlier, we were talking about licensing fees to license music. She was interested in licensing uh, We Are The World. 
And when I told her that she would, you know, have to pay a licensing fee in order to, to record it, even for a nonprofit, uh, there's a reason why. You know, there's a reason why Prince uh, was very, very um, careful about who controlled his music was because he didn't want to give it away. You know, he had integrity in his music, his product, and that's that's his livelihood. That was his retirement. Um, and so musicians need to be aware of that for sure. Okay, so when you talk about that, and I get into a lot of discussions, and I do agree, especially when it comes to hip-hop, just the whole idea of the value of music. As so many younger hip-hop artists always say, the way you think, you should be my manager. And the first question I always ask them is, when's the last time you bought a ticket to a show, and when's the last time you bought music? And the, the stare almost as if uh, a ghost was asking them a question, mm -hmm. like, you know. They don't know what that is. Do you pay for air? And it's like, um, you know, no, but I, I think so. It's like, okay, first we need to get into the thought process of does that audience exist that will be willing to buy? And furthermore, maybe the music you're making is not in a place where people that are willing to buy can reach that, you know. But um, you, you talked about something, Attorney Hoops, that is very tough for a lot of artists, especially hip hop artists, because the idea is you want to, I guess the term generally used is, you want to get a buzz mm -hmm. going first. Right. So to get, to get a buzz going, you have to give away something for free. And if something is free, then how does it transition into something else? So how, how can an artist get a buzz going? And to get that buzz going, they're gonna make some quality product, but still get some value from it. Think of it this way. So. You know, people can categorize Stephanie and me as, as entertainment lawyers. We're, we're business people too. This is how we earn a living. Just like you would earn a living performing or recording. Uh, you know, she and I, I know you get the same things I do, where people want a, a contract for free. And so if, if, if I just emailed somebody a side artist agreement or she did, you know what, we're never gonna get paid for that agreement. Even though we did it to be nice, to help somebody out, because when you email it, guess what? It's gonna get forwarded on to mm -hmm. thousands of other people and it's gonna get watered down. Next thing you know, the agreement she and I originally started off with, it's not the same, but we gave it away. Mm -hmm. And that just cost us money in the, in the very long term. Um, so you have to think like a business person. How does she and I go out and get clients then? We come do things like this. Mm -hmm. We spend a little time with people, but we're not just giving away what we have. You know, there's nothing wrong with somebody trying to get the buzz, but by just recording something, emailing it, posting it online, thinking that, well, a big audience is going to hear it, I'm going to get my break, that ain't happening. The odds of that are so low. So there are other ways to do it, and that's what they need to find out. Just like she and I have other ways to find clients, it's not from giving away what we do. And uh, it's so funny, I'm always asked, why don't you go on SoundCloud? Because the minute that someone finds out a rap, the first question they ask is, where you at on SoundCloud? I'm like, I'm not on SoundCloud because I can't sell music on SoundCloud. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, how do people hear your music? I'm like, well, I'd rather limit it to the people I can sell it to right. than to open it up to masses of audience. And then I ran into this problem with, I guess, like this is dating me a little bit <laughs> in the MySpace era. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of MySpace fans that all listen to my music. And then when I finally came out with an album, I'm like, okay, I have, I had maybe, 10,000 MySpace followers, I just in my mind said, okay, even with a low percentage, I assume maybe 25% of these people buy my album. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, I sold six albums for my MySpace friends. Right. Well, you know, that I was going to say, you're really 
just like in any other relationship, you train people how to treat you, mm -hmm. and you're conditioning an audience to expect free music. So if you give people free music, even if they like it, you're conditioning them where they are never going to want to pay for something that you originally gave away for free. Why should they? Right. Yeah, I, I do think that it does create a difference in how you see that. And I also believe that this thought process in speaking to hip hop a little bit more, even with the show, how do you raise more value for the show and the experience that people tie to? Right now, <clears throat> in Detroit is one of the biggest shows as people always ask, like, why do you look at these shows and why do you study these shows? Because I always I look at the experience and Kenny Chesney is in town. Now, I'm definitely not a Kenny Chesney fan, but I do recognize that he has a movement mm -hmm. around what his music is. So it's experiential. It's beyond him being Kenny Chesney. The same way, I guess, KISS has an audience. And also, Jimmy Buffett has an audience. How do you, and, and I'm looking to do that myself, because I, I think that that's what people want to tie to with the show. How, and also, I guess, like, a, a really classic one would be George, George Clinton, Parliament and Funkadelic. It's like, as much as it's the music, it's the experience of being in that mothership connection. How would you... How, how do you encourage an artist such as myself that's an independent artist and just getting everything going and that doesn't have like corporate backing and the pockets deep enough to do something like that to build an experience where you can where you can sometimes have a show where you're charging people thirty dollars to come and then maybe have a show that charges people ten dollars to, to come what's what's some takes on that from either attorney hoops or attorney Hammonds? Well, my thought is is that when you're starting out in any business, I think what's most important for artists is to establish an identity in their niche. You know, mm -hmm. too often you see artists that copy somebody who is successful and they aspire to do what they're doing. So I think once you identify who you are as an artist and you put that out there, somebody's going to connect to it. From there, you see where your demographics are and you build, it's an expression of yourself, really. So it's difficult to say exactly what you do, but I think once you identify who you are and people can connect to the authenticity of that, either they like your music or they don't. Mm -hmm. And from there, there is a um, identifiable demographic, and sometimes it can be a very broad demographic, like Prince's audience, as far as ethnicity, gender, mm -hmm. and all of that was very broad, but it's ultimately your product. And so that's one thing. And then second thing is nothing is happening overnight. Um, so there has to be a level of commitment, dedication, and patience in the process. So even when you see people and you think that they were successful overnight, it usually takes a good 10 years, seven to 10 years, for an artist, once they are committed to it, um, to actually have a presence. So once you have an identity, and you're comfortable with your music and you have a sense of direction with your music and you start to connect with people, then that's where I think you can use some of the tools of social media because then you have dedicated fans as opposed to just numbers. Because I think a lot of time there's emphasis on how many likes does my artist page have? How many followers do I have? How many friends do I have? But they're not genuine, dedicated fans 
just as, as you described in your MySpace experience, oh, yeah. you know, that's going to translate into dollars or, or, or purchases sold. So I don't know that there's any one answer, but I do know that genuineness, authenticity um, in your music are, are starts. And then when you talk about building a buzz, Detroit isn't the best place for having a lot of venues to perform when you don't have um, a name for yourself, but looking for those opportunities, you mentioned hip hop, whether it's open mics or even approaching restaurants or other places and saying, hey, I'd like to come in and have a night and try to barter with them for the door. You start, I think, with trying to look at creative ways that will, I guess, collect creative collaborations with businesses and other people so that they can possibly see a benefit to them. Where, and that's where, I mean, Dan gave the example, which is a good one, where we don't give away things, but starting out as an attorney, I can't speak for him, but I know for me, in order to get clients that would were willing to come to me without experience, I would sometimes charge rates that I wouldn't charge now, mm-hmm. or I might charge um, on a contingency basis as opposed to demanding money up front. So using that as a business model, whether it's bartering or whether, the main thing is collaborative partnerships where you can create win-win situations for people. I think that some of the problems are people just don't know, artists don't know, and then I'm going to be quiet and let attorney Hoops talk on this. Um, they don't know, and so they think, okay, I'm an artist, I'm performing, I'm supposed to get paid. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it does work that way, but you work yourself up to that way. So, I'm no, sorry. I agree with you on, on that for sure, Stephanie. And, and it's it's kind of a loaded question you ask. How do you create this? Because you, what you're talking about really is like an experience, you know. Yes. And and I think anybody, just like she said, you know, if you're original, if you are doing it yourself, you're unique. You you're going to create that somehow. It doesn't happen overnight. Nobody gets success overnight. And part of the problem I see with a lot of younger musicians, and I don't care what genre is first they're they're cocky as we all were when we were young so i'm better than this person that's just how that's just youthful inexperience um but then they look at people like us and they figure well you guys are a little older so and you're all very successful everybody thinks everybody's super successful so there's that envy at the same time i can be you and i'm tired of hearing people talking about well mark zuckerberg did it or snoop dogg did if they had any idea the time and the struggles that go into the millions of non-Snoop and non-Mark Zuckerbergs, they'd realize you have to be disciplined and you have to put in the time, you have to pay your dues. And I think about like the, the Detroit techno scene. It really has become sort of a cultural experience. It's kind yes. of strange when you see it, you know, whether it's in Detroit, anywhere else in the United States, in Asia, South America, or Europe, there's several different interpolations of that sort of cultural experience and these guys didn't sit down one day and say here's our plan this is what we're going to do it just started off that way i mean you've known derek may for a very long time you yes. know when he had hair yes and you know what happened with him is you know they started off spinning in in uh, underground rave parties you know not drug parties but just people wanted to come through because they didn't have an opportunity to play anywhere they figured out how can we get our music out there so people can hear it and they got lucky. People, the buzz started to pick up. And they created their own little brand. I mean, if you look at the way these guys dress, they don't dress like Americans. You know, they kind of have this cool little thing going on. Well, I get that from going to Europe or from going to Japan. And opportunities start developing around them from that. Whether it's, 
filming a score, you know, out of a movie from Japan or from, from France, shoe contracts, glasses contracts, all these things, but they're in their 50s, and these young cats don't realize that. They, you know, I'm sure you get these, Stephanie, where people come in, a young kid, and they order up all the services. I wanna get a contracts, I wanna get trademarks, I wanna get all this stuff. And you have to sit back and you gotta say, listen up young buck, you need to sit back for a minute. Number one, this is a lot of time and expense and what have you, and, and sure, you're up and coming, I'm not gonna gouge you, I wanna work with you, but you like, it's like you're starting a restaurant and you're also selling automobiles, you're also selling you know, timeshares, you're selling you know, all kinds of things, Keep it simple early on. Make sure that what you're doing early on, you, you get it and you understand how you do it. And then these other things will kind of come with it. And but it does. It takes time. It takes patience. And and uh, the, the the artists I've seen who were one hit wonders, that that's exactly why they're a one hit wonder because they started off as a fan. They copied someone else, just like you said. And the, the people that I see that are not successful in the music industry started off as a fan. It's the people who just said, "I'm an artist first and then everything kind of worked around them. You know, there, there's always some luck involved and then ha having good people around you, but they didn't start off as a fan. And, and I see too many kids today, because technology makes it so easy to make music or make any kind of art, they're not passionate about it. They're thinking about money, mm -hmm. they're thinking about clothes, they're thinking about material things rather than the art. And the art is what will give rise to all this. Um, I don't want to say the guy's name, but he was a big star in the 90s um, he's from New York and he was in town. He did a little appearance around here. We had dinner with this guy and you know, he was on top of the world in the 90s and he comes into town he's getting paid like $2,500. You know, he had like one hit song. $2,500 this guy was getting paid to play one gig and he was just all over me. Oh, can you get me a tour in Europe? And can you get this and get that? And it's like all this guy was concerned about now was survival. Mm -hmm. It's because he started off, he got lucky, mm -hmm. he was a fan. And that's all he had. He was very, very one-dimensional. And I like to see people who have a lot more around them. And, and those are the ones who are typically are going to be successful. And you, you touched on a couple of different things. But first, you... I know I'm a loudmouth. I touch on everything, right? No, no. But I, everything you're sharing, I think this is going to be a great discussion for people to listen to. I know I'm going to already go back and listen to it myself. But you touched on Derek May. And Derek, one of the forefathers of techno, and also... As uh, as I always say, it's like he's one of my big homies. I love Derek, and Derek, uh, I met Derek because we we had our studio on, as they call it, uh, they used to call it like Techno, know, Techno Alley, and <clears throat> one week after meeting him, he was like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna take you into my studio." You know how Derek, how cool Derek is. So Derek's like, "Come on, man, I'm gonna show you." So <clears throat> I walk into Derek's studio, and I'm with my DJ drummer B. And then Derek's working on some new music at the time. This had to be maybe 10 years ago or something. And the whole like bottom of, of the floor, it was just like all of these gold records from, from the UK and, and, and like Japan and, and platinum records. And I'm just looking at it. And I'm like, man, he's selling a lot of records. Like, so this is my thought process. And then Derek told me some of the, I think, some of the best advice ever in music that I've ever gotten in the sense of kind of building that audience. He said, well, when we started this, we really didn't know what we were doing, but we do know that what we were connecting to, it was a couple of kids, you know, he was like, you know, it'd be like a couple rich kids, rich white kids, they come down, like our music, 
you know, some of them drink or get high and they listen to it. Now, those same couple of kids, as their life, they, they took on listening to this music and it kind of defined who they are. So as some of those kids ended up becoming movie producers, mm -hmm. the minute they got an opportunity to make a movie, they put techno in the movie. The minute that they had the opportunity to um, basically be an advertising agency, it was like, we're going to put this in the ad. The minute they were doing anything with the show or a tour. So I'm like, he said, from a niche, small audience that really were a part of the music from the beginning, a lot of opportunities birthed. And he really said, a lot of the other DJs, it's so funny, as you say, like the copycat of it, because they would they worked with Mojo, and a lot of other DJs worked with Mojo. And he was like, I remember the guys that were just playing Rick James, and those guys are still playing whatever is in the top 40 right now. Mm -hmm. And then they wonder how we're in Japan. And a lot of it is because we built and were a part of something that was different and distinct to our own. Now, he I, didn't say it in those exact words because, you know, Derek. Yeah. But it was that's what I pulled out of it of saying, like, these people connected and it was a small audience. But it was a, a different type of small audience instead of seeking, you know, because they could have easily just played Rick James. Right. And, let like me everyone else. take something you said there, and, and it's something that I think the three of us are talking about is business rather than just music business, that it really is a business. And and that's how we, uh, I think that's how we approach it. And I met Kari, your son, mm -hmm. uh, when he was a student at Walsh College when I was on the faculty there. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we always emphasized was networking, business networking. Um, and I'm not talking about music business networking. And a lot of times a lot of young artists don't realize that the relationships they're creating you know, down the road are going to be instrumental in, in, in their success, whether it's continuing that buzz, putting it up on SoundCloud, or putting it up on MySpace. Well, that's what so-and-so is doing, so I should do the same thing. Not realizing that maybe some kid that grew up, you know, down the street, or somebody went to school with, who's doing something completely unrelated, maybe working at Ford Motor Company, mm -hmm. might be working in the ad agency. And if you treated that person right long ago and they remember you, um, and you're reliable, they're gonna come back. And it's just like, as a lawyer, you know, if I do a bad job, I'm not gonna get any more clients, you know? And if Stephanie does a great job, everyone's gonna, oh, you need to call up Stephanie Ham. she's the one you wanna talk to. Mm -hmm. That's how we market ourselves, you know, is doing a good job, word of mouth. And that's what a lot of musicians don't realize, that they think they have to travel in one really small, you know, circuit, and they think Stephanie and I are gonna make them big, you know, because, well, you know, you're big time entertainment. We don't do that. It's the people you know that come and find you. We just get involved when you need us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we don't make dreams happen. It's it's what you do, and, and that what you just said there about the networking, the ad agencies, and the film producers, those come from your own experiences, your own personal lives. And as you talk about what comes from your own personal life, and these opportunities are start more opportunities are presenting themselves for me, even as I do things. And mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, I remember like the drummer I work with, Alex, I love Alex White. So even when he was doing his album, and he said, I, I got an investor and the investor is gonna put in a couple thousand dollars for my album, cause I wanna get it done the right way at the right studio. And then when he told me and he was excited and I was like, all right, these are some questions that you need to ask. And then it was another one of those blank looks where Alex looked at me. I'm like, okay, first off, do you, <clears throat> Will this investor, and this, these are questions that I have as far as how people and artists should look at investment into their artistry and how to work out the right, the right terms for this. Because first off, investing in artistry, you may just lose, I mean, investing in any business is risky, but you may lose all your money. But if I'm an artist and I'm making a movie per se, because I know movies generally take a lot of money, 
and I have an investor. I have a, a producer that's willing to put $10,000 so I can go work the, I guess, film circuit, market, the, the film festival market. And I, I wanna try to get this movie on Netflix. How should I work the return and the payment and what type of investor should I look for? I guess let's start with that. What type of investor should I look for if I'm an artist? Well, I would say quite simply someone who can afford to lose the money and who is not looking for an immediate return or return period because um, what I have seen, a lot of people want to be the next Puff Daddy or Suge Knight and they don't realize the risk that's involved or even the, how things have, the climate has changed. Um, that would be my, my answer initially. Someone who, with that type of expectation and also someone who, um, I lost my train of thought. Well, so what do you, the, let the, me ask you this. If you're looking for an investor and you were, you started off like someone, if someone should invest if they're, have enough to take the, the risk of the money. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think you were kind of going down to what they should expect back from. Well, what do you, what do that. you, what are they making an investment in? Right. Studio time, a tour to make the movie? Because I hear people all the time, my, you know, my cousin or my uncle is going to invest, a, you know, $10,000 in my next project. I'm like, well, what are you going to use the money for? Mm -hmm. You know, if she and I have a client that want to open a car wash or something, or I want to, I want to start... Uh, a coffee franchise, you know, uh, Beaner or Bigby Coffee Shop franchise. Well, we know what the cost of that is. We can look at it. And we can see the breakdown. Mm -hmm. So with an artist saying, I'm looking for an investor, you and I have seen enough of these shady people. They're like, well, I want control and ownership of your copyrights mm -hmm. in case you don't pay me back. Mm -hmm. That's how the young artist ends up getting screwed down the road because mm -hmm. they got to pay the piper back at some point. Somebody's got them you know, they got them by, around the throat. So I normally stay away from investors unless it's like a, something tangible that we know we're gonna do because it never turns out pretty, so, number one. But number two, the legal fees, because unless mm -hmm. it's a family member, mm -hmm. um, you, you're gonna need to put together what we call a private placement memorandum, which is a disclosure document because we have to comply with the state and federal securities laws. And those are very expensive to put together from the legal standpoint. Because if she or I make a mistake, we're going to get, not only can we get sued for malpractice and fraud, we can get brought in front of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So she and I have a lot of risk mm -hmm. when we're dealing with investors. And so I like to stay away from them unless it's like some serious stuff, we know what's up, and the person actually has a business plan. Some young kid comes to me and says he's got an investor. I'm going to tell him to get out of the door. Let's find, go get a job, save your money, pay for it yourself, because this is not going to end well for you. So for a young filmmaker, especially right now in the, in the world of so many more channels to release television mm -hmm. and film, what would you suggest? Build a portfolio, just like a young musician is going to. Start getting things out there, but be smart about where it's going because no one is going to come and put millions of dollars into an unknown filmmaker, just like an unknown musician. You need to earn your stripes, and as you continue up the you know, up the food chain or you build your resume over time, then you can start commanding that. But early on, you got to do it on your own. You know, you got to do, because I've done a lot of film and TV work, you got to start, you know, I was shocked to find out that if you want to make a big budget film and you've done nothing, these guys are like raising money to do, you know, short films. That's why like Sundance has like a short film category. These are for unknown 
filmmakers, you know? And so once your shorts, people are like, yeah, you got some talent over there. I'm thinking about, it. I might give you your first break. You gotta get there before you just come right, come right out. Okay. And to that end, I was just gonna give a practical example. I can't remember the name of her name. I think her last name is Ray though, but she did a series, a web series called Awkward Black Girl. Pharrell saw it and kind of invested in her. That was probably maybe good two, three, maybe four years ago. Now she's just at a point now where she's got a, a show on HBO. Mm -hmm. So I think that probably, and I say this all the time to people, patience is necessary because a lot of people think that they can take cuts in line mm -hmm. and the line to success by paying money or getting money and they think money is the answer. And a lot of times it's not. You can't experience um, creativity, growth and development. Those are not things you can buy. Mm -hmm. Those are things you have to experience and have to go through. Development you can't buy. So, I mean, I tell people all the time because I don't shop deals and they want to know, do you shop a deal? And I always ask them if I could get L.A. Reid, you get you right in front of L.A. Reid right now, would you be ready? You know, is that the only thing between you and having your music out, the fact that you can't get in front of <clears throat> L.A. Reid? Because I think a lot of times when you don't prepare, it's a quote from um, Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if he said it, but I think it's a good quote. It's like, I will study and I will prepare and, want, and someday my opportunity will come. There's no way around preparing, developing. And, and I think the only thing worse than not getting an opportunity is having an opportunity and messing it up. So I think a lot of people don't realize that and they think that they want to rush and they don't want to go through the process. It's just like, you know, it takes nine months for you to have a baby, for the baby to develop. Your career has to go through its in incubation period. Mm -hmm. And so it. You know, I, I don't know how long that's going to be. I mean, that could depend on how much time you devote to it, how talented you are, your natural ability, opportunities, um, exposure, but there's no way around it. And I think that when people accept that, and it goes back to what Dan was saying about really loving what you do, because I love what I do. Law is hard work, and I honestly feel that if I didn't enjoy the area I was practicing in, I would hate being a lawyer. So. Mm -hmm when people operate from the standpoint of trying to take shortcuts and they're not motivated by a genuine love of it but I want to get rich, I want to be famous, I think that's why you hear a lot of terrible music now. Well, You're right and that's why we see terrible shows like America's Got Talent and mm -hmm. all that because these are essentially talentless people who are going up you know because the fame and the fortune and and it's a ratings game mm -hmm. you know and shopping a deal you know that's very rare that's gonna work it's usually person who's at the top of the food chain who is looking for new people and those people have already made it they know what they're looking for mm -hmm. they'll find you somehow some way you know the example I like to use I'm sure you're familiar with Kamal Bell mm -hmm. Kamal was uh, the cousin of my old neighbor and so we came down and we saw him perform with Dave Chappelle years ago and you know he hooked us up in the whole nine yards we hung out with Kamal the whole weekend and just talking to him about his struggle, you know, because he'd been on the circuit as a comedian for 10 years before this, and this was like 2008. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember, you know, my neighbor kept telling me, oh yeah, my, my cousin, you know, he's a, you know, he's a comedian, he's opening for Chappelle now. And listening to how long it took him just to get where he was, and that was long before he even had his TV show, and he had a lot more success, mm -hmm. but he was also working with Chris Rock. Mm -hmm. These guys found him, 
you know and even back you know he's a different comedian today than he was 10 years ago than he was 20 years ago he evolved but he didn't get frustrated he loved it he didn't sit here and call up people like us saying can you shop me a deal he went out and he just did his thing what he did he went on the tour he was broke he was hungry he was living with his mom doing his thing but he loved doing it and he was driven by it but he was also he was smart about it and he wasn't looking for shortcuts I mean you know and I have a lot of respect for him now you know I hear him all the time on the raid I think that was a couple years ago that dude was sitting on my patio having a corona light with me you know but he's he's done it he did it himself and and I think people in the industry respect people like that and it's the people who got a real quick way in they're gonna they're gonna burn out right away they don't have the inner you know the, the inner fire that I think that a lot of successful people have I mean Prince was just crazy fire burning inside him you know and it's just that's just kind of how you know you, you see those people and you can say that that's the it person you see it with athletes you see it with actors you just know you know what you're gonna get from that person now as you talk about that and this is definitely one of the things that Mama Barnes my godmother was big on and then I'm on it too I do a lot of different things when it comes to anything that I'm doing you know and it can definitely be said that sometimes I spread myself thin but it's very difficult to pick bringing on and working with new people and I think that I'm looking to have more patience but how do you go about picking building your team around you when you do have the resources for publicists for agent for manager for just even as small as someone working with you and maybe even coming to some meetings with you how do you build that team around you if you're an artist Tony Hammonds, what you think? I think you do it very deliberately. Um, and for me, I think the people that go the farthest, your radar first has to go for the character of a person. Yep. So, because you, even if someone is inexperienced, they can learn. But you can have experienced people who, with malicious intent, take advantage of you. So the character and integrity of the person is first, and that they, they need to care about me. I mean, people tease me, and I have clients from all ages, some that are older than me, and they, they say, yes, mother, no mother, because they know that I care about them, and I'm going to tell them what I think they need to know and not what they want to hear. So I think there's a baseline when you're dealing with anybody, and it's not like everybody's, you're not going to... You're not going to invite every person you work with to Thanksgiving dinner. I'm not saying that. But there has to be a certain connection between the people that work with you, that represent you, that goes beyond you what you can pay them or the money that they can make for them. And, and I think you need to have people that believe in you and believe in what you're doing and don't look at it as just a dollar sign. Those are like the base um, baseline qualifications. But when you're talking about timing, I think at a point where there is interest in you and there are different levels of interest. Um, an artist, I heard a, a crude saying once that, you know, a prostitute cannot be their own pimp, right? So as an artist, you have something of value. So at the time when you're sitting down at meetings, um, discussing interest or discussing business, I think at that point you need to have someone at the table with you so that you have a buffer and that so that you also are not in a position to represent yourself because no matter how great you are it, you can't sell yourself that way you know it, it comes across better from a third-party person so when we're talking so so at a simple business meeting where there's a business on the table you do need someone with you in my opinion now whether that person is a manager or a lawyer 
um, I would say probably a manager or someone who in that capacity. Lawyers generally come into the picture when there are contracts or mm -hmm. to either to be drawn up or paperwork that has been presented to you. Um, so I don't know if that gives you any insight. No, you actually, you said the very first word out of your mouth, character. I okay. agree with that 100% because next to music, in my opinion, the dirtiest business is the world of art, visual art. Um, but the music industry can be pretty dirty and the reason why is because people see it all on TV, you hear it on the radio, everybody wants to make a million dollars doing this, that or the other and they're thinking about themselves and you know to find people that you can trust and you can work with, having experience is one thing obviously but like like I said you can learn a lot of this stuff on the fly. Like I don't, don't really consider myself an entertainment lawyer because I consider myself a business lawyer. It's just a different kind of business. and. There are some specifics, you know, there's some aspects in copyright law that are very similar to the, to the Internal Revenue Code. And, you know, you just have to kind of know how, where the similarities are and where the differences are. But people, you know, and it's, I don't care if it's music, I don't care where it is, people can disappoint you and they can break your heart. And if you had the wrong person on your team just because, you know, it's, it's a family member or it's an old friend, um, you know, if you, they, if you don't trust them, you know, it's your life that you're with, you know, and, you know, something my dad taught us when I was a little kid was, you know, to scare us away from doing drugs. It was always, if one of your friends is carrying around drugs and they're in your car and you get pulled over, you, you know, your friend is doing you a disservice because you're going to get in trouble too. And it, it always stuck with me that, you know, I don't want to have a friend who wants to get me in trouble. You know, get yourself into trouble. Don't bring me down with you. Mm -hmm. And if it's somebody who's thinking about themselves selfishly in your career and your life, you know, that's not that's not the right person to have around you. You know, and you don't want them. You know, I'm sure you've had a few people come behind. You know, call you up, and maybe second guess something the car he was doing. Well, what does that mean? It's like. Whew. Who are you to, you know, suddenly do this? Let's all talk about this. Don't be calling me up on the side, mm -hmm. you know, because you've got certain issues or you want me to do something. Right off the bat, that raises a red flag, and I, I don't want to deal with anything like that. Okay. And from an artist's perspective, let me say this. Stephanie is amazing. I think that I, I, I would not be... Um, and Laura knows, I, I go against the grain all the time. So when Stephanie says she, she'll disagree with you, she has disagreed with me a many a time. And I've learned. And she's always selling the right, she's always giving the right advice and the, the right advice so that I can move forward, especially as we get into discussions about sampling and what that sampling should be and if I should sample and how I should sample. And now that I'm becoming more experienced in a lot of facets of business, uh, what you said with character does stand out a whole lot and I am looking to expand the team and the group of people I work with as I'm even working with my mom a whole lot more and she's like right there right in front of me now so you know it's it's I do think that a team can take you far when you have a good team around you and as you talk about the team around you it does come down to the business of financing as my dad's a CPA how do you think most artists should plan what they do as as an entrepreneur and an artist myself like even when it comes to like how i spend money on going to the doctor and health and you know i mean just the unfortunate situation of what happened with jay dilla and most most of us don't have health insurance uh or thea barnes uh was very very 
big on saying, okay, you all need to start setting up life insurance policies. Mm -hmm. You all need to start planning this or planning that. As when she owned her club or Thea's place, uh, one of the things that brought the Detroit community together originally in the mid 90s was the fact after a couple of passings of artists as what's so strange is we've seen some monumental passings recently of mm -hmm. Detroit artists from Alan Barnes to so many others uh, James Jamerson Jr. Mm -hmm. it's just been one after the other when it comes to financing and planning your estate and building an estate attorney hoops yeah. and attorney Hammonds okay. what should an artist be thinking well, you definitely need to, it goes right back to the very first part of this conversation. You want people to look at it like any other business. She and I are attorneys, but that we also have to earn a living somehow, some way. I'm a professor, that's a job. If you're a musician, it's a job. And if you are working for a large institution, whether it's Northwood University or Ford Motor Company, a lot of that's already put in place for you. You got your health insurance, you got your retirement, you got your two weeks vacation, this, that, and the other. As a lawyer, I don't have that if I'm on my own. So I gotta go out and find it. If I get sick, I want insurance. Now we need it under the Affordable Health Care Act. So you gotta have insurance. You gotta be thinking about your retirement. If I'm paying self-employment tax, that goes into my Social Security. I'm not gonna be able to live off of Social Security, so I'm gonna have to chip away a little bit more into a 401k. I have to think about my long term because I don't know what's gonna happen to me. So when you're a musician, you got to think about that too. But I got to tell you, it's very tempting to say, I really want to get that new car mm -hmm. rather than to save that money. Well, again, it comes back to it takes a long time to get to the top of the mountain. And when you're younger, start saving up that. But you have to think about yourself as, first and foremost, your retirement and if something were to go wrong with you. Estate planning is another thing. And trying to get an artist or a musician to sign an estate plan, it's like pulling out your teeth and your hair at the same time. They don't want to do it. I had one client and he unfortunately passed away. I put an estate plan in front of him because I said, you need to do this. You have five children and you don't have any of this stuff put in place. They're all minors. You got some music that's going to pay royalties down the road. Sign it. And he told me I was cursing him. We died three years later. Had he signed the estate plan, which he never did. And I kept following up. I mean, there's only so much mom and dad you and I can do. People got to take it upon themselves. I wasn't trying to curse you. When he passed away, it turned into a mess. We see these messes all the time because people don't plan their estate. And that is really the other question of when people do pass. Mm -hmm. If you don't have it set up, you don't say who's going to be your trustee, who's going to be your personal representative, who's going to be your power of attorney, anybody in your family can step in. There's a priority in the statute. And if I got somebody in my family I don't want coming near me when I'm dead, if I don't have that put in my estate plan, they might be the first one in. So you want to make sure you pick and choose how you want it to go. And while you're alive and you're healthy, that's the time to do it. You know, something I tell clients, you know, with like a prenuptial agreement, mm -hmm. you know, freaks people out. Sign a prenuptial agreement before you get married. You're like, well, you're cursing my marriage. Well, guess what? If it, you never have to use it, then it's no big deal at all. I didn't curse you. But if you need it, man, mm -hmm. you're going to be glad you got it. Because the prenuptial agreement is something that, yeah, it, it creates distrust in the marriage. I get that. But at the same time, if there are concerns, or maybe you've got children from prior relationships, you want to protect your children. You don't want to have a fight after you're gone. Because that's the problem. When you get these fights, you're relying on a judge mm -hmm. who doesn't know you, might not like you, or might like the lawyer on the other side. Mm -hmm. Man, you're putting everything in jeopardy there. 
Huh? Prince is an example. I can go on and on. James Brown was an example. Even Martin Luther King's estate was a, was an example. I mean, it's just it's insane when people don't put them together. Elvis Presley's estate, it turned into a great big fight. It's like, man, you know, people got to think about these things and not yeah. be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. What I would add to that is that starting out as a young person, sometimes it, you don't necessarily feel cursed, but you might not feel like you have anything. I think that that's worth it, that, or you feel like you're going to live mm-hmm. forever. Um, it's never too early to investigate life insurance. You can get a decent policy, you know, without paying an arm and a leg. Sometimes, I know BMI, I don't know about ASCAP, has discounted rates, or, or like Dan said, it's the law now that you have to have some sort of health insurance policy. Um, what I think is the biggest tragedy, though, because I've dealt with estates where people didn't um, have any type of will or trust in place, is when you're dealing with the distribution of the assets. Because most of the time, when you look at it, artists themselves aren't, the average artist doesn't really know that much about royalties and that type of thing, other than they, they might know, okay, what dates they can expect to receive mm-hmm. them. They don't necessarily keep. Um, track of copyrights when they're they're going to expire. I mean, it's not such a big deal now because the the expiration dates are like 75 years after you know the life of the person. But when you're dealing with people from the 60s, there are there are some that can lapse because it wasn't that long of a period of time. I, I think that if you look at examples like Afeni Shakur, before she passed away, she made sure, actually after Tupac did, his his music is in a trust. These type of things help to protect music assets from a legal standpoint and put things in place so that when you're dealing with heirs, you're dealing with distribution of money and not necessarily decisions or legal protection of things. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of artists make is underestimating the value of the work that they're creating. They think it's good, but they don't know. I mean, probably even Tupac and Biggie had no idea the impact that they would eventually have on on hip hop. And I think that when you love music and you love what you're doing and you believe in the integrity of what you're doing, you have to have the vision to know or the mindset to know that you don't know where it's going to go and you have to treat it with that level of seriousness to want to be able to protect it. So in short, investigate organizations that are geared toward um, musicians, whether it's a local musicians union, whether it's a performing rights society, seek out organizations that cater to artists and see if there is a special life insurance plan or health insurance plan. Um, Invest in yourself, establish ways, because trust can help you um, not only when you're no longer here, but they can help to insulate assets and revenue of assets from litigation. You know, if for some reason the artist is wildly successful and they're sued and they're found to be liable, a trust that's set up in a timely way, every state has a a length of time before it's judgment proof. But if you're not, you know, because they don't want you to try to put your assets in a trust to avoid an impending liability. Mm -hmm. But if you, I think the key is knowing these steps and, and that all goes back to education. Um, 
my advice to any artist would be don't wait till you think you're at the point where you need to know about things like this to begin investigating. If you believe strongly enough in yourself and you believe that you are going to make a serious um, effort to be a professional musician, then you have to expect that you're going to get to that point. Uh, and then if you expect to get to that point, what steps do I need to take? If you don't know, that again is why you come to a, a, a trained attorney like Dan or myself, but you need to be thinking along those lines. Just like, you know, we've had these discussions about sampling. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, and it's, it's not just you, so I'm not picking on you, oh, yeah. but artists, the first thing that they'll say is that, well, they're not going to find me because I'm not offering it for sale. I'm not going to sell that many copies anyway. Well, first of all, copyright infringement exists if you distribute it, whether you give it away or not. One of the exclusive rights that a original copyright holder has is the exclusive right to distribute, copy um, their work. So if you are sampling their work and you're distributing it, even if you're not charging anything for it, you're still guilty of copyright infringement. But my next question is, well, why would you put time, energy, money, and effort into a project that you don't think is going to sell that much or that you're going to have to try to suppress the success of it because you don't want it to be on anybody's legal radar? Mm -hmm. So um, I know I've kind of gone around the block with the, with the mm -hmm. answer, but I hope it's I'm answered sure, some of the questions. I'm sure I have like a hip-hop DJ explanation for that <laughs> in my mind somewhere. But it, it, it's, this has been a great discussion. I can't wait for this discussion to carry over and build from it. I'm going to invite both of you all back next year when we do it. Okay. And we're going to podcast it again. We can talk. We, we touched on so many different things that I think are very helpful. I'm going to share this with everyone I know. But what they really need to know is how do people get in contact with you? How do they reach out if they have questions, if they're looking for representation? Well, I can be reached... Um my office is located in the Chrysler House building, located at 719 Griswold, Suite 820 in downtown Detroit. I can be reached at, by email at uh, stephanielynn.hammonds at gmail.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I'm not sure what my handles are for Facebook or Twitter. But the best way to reach me is um, email or phone. The office number is 313 three four zero zero four four zero or I'm a person that answers the cell phone when it isn't an emergency so I can also be reached on my cell at three one three five zero six six nine zero five. Well I'm a I'm a Batman so I just you know I put my signal on. <laughs> uh, no actually the best way to reach me is is on my email which is D hoops so D H O O P S at P A A Law Firm dot com. Um, I get too many phone calls, I'm wearing too many hats, I'm a professor so I get students calling me, I have a, three email addresses so and I actually, had, I'm proud you got a Facebook, I had to give that up years ago, it's getting audited by my ex-girlfriend, that's why I had to get rid of it, so um, no, the best way to get me is on my email, I get that email on my, on my cell phone which is like a tether like we all carry around these days, so I will get your email and I will try to reply as quickly as possible. Well, thank you so much. And this Detroit is different. I haven't done a Detroit is different podcast in a while, but this is going to be a great one to put up. I'm going to put that information in the description. It should be up next week. And I can't wait to share it. Well, thank you for having us. Thank, thank you, you. Kyrie.